Hello, Salam, Diagwis, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, Episode 9, The Anglo-Persian War. Before we begin today's episode, I have one small correction to make. Back on Episode 7, The Fall of Amir Kabir, I mistakenly said that the fallen vizier was strangled to death in the Finn Gardens of Kashan. This was an error on my part. Amir Kabir was indeed murdered in the Finn Gardens, but he died after being forced to slit his own wrists by a royal executioner, not by strangulation. Thank you to Sasanian Shah on Twitter for noting the error. Now, on with the show. In November 1855, Nasser al-Din sent a note to his chief minister, Aga Khan Nuri. Abbas Amanat translates the note as follows. Quote, in a dream, I saw a garden with a tall, massive pine tree in the middle. I was viewing it from a distance, and the name of the tree was Victoria. Indeed, that tree was the country and the monarchy of England. I ordered the pine tree called Victoria to be uprooted and replanted in another location and said, call it Mohammed. Victoria is bad. The timing of the dream was appropriate. The previous day, the Shah had expelled the British minister plenipotentiary, Charles Murray, from Tehran. In doing so, he had severed diplomatic relations with London. A few weeks later, the Shah ordered troops for an expedition to retake the city of Herat, setting in motion a series of events that would culminate in war with Great Britain in 1856. On the face of it, the Shah's expedition to Herat appeared foolhardy. A treaty with the British, signed in 1853, compelled Persia to refrain from sending armed forces to Herat unless the city was already under attack by foreign troops. Deploying troops there risked triggering a British response. Indeed, a previous Gajar attempt to seize the city in 1837 had very nearly led to a full-scale British invasion. Any course of action that could lead to war with Britain was an existentially dangerous undertaking for Iran. Nobody was in any doubt who would win in a war between the world's greatest military power and a country that couldn't even pay its soldiers on time. The Iranian strategy went something like this. The Persians would occupy Herat, after which they could use the city as leverage to win over diplomatic concessions from the British. Nasser al-Din probably didn't expect to fully re-annex the city. Rather, he hoped to have the existing arrangement, de facto independence for the city, with its ruler paying nominal homage to Tehran, recognised by the nations of the West. Recognition of Persian claims by important states in Europe and America would hopefully dissuade the British-allied emir of Afghanistan, Dost Muhammad Khan, from conquering the city and placing it forever out of reach of the Shah. Nasser al-Din also hoped to secure greater freedom of action domestically. In particular, he wanted to concentrate troops in Khorasan in order to dissuade raiding 
by Turkmen and Afghan tribes, and to deploy others along the Zagros Mountains to militarily intimidate the Ottomans along his western frontiers. All things that the British had never allowed him to do. With Herat as a bargaining chip, and taking advantage of friendly western powers, the Shah believed he could force the British to accept his right to send his soldiers wherever he pleased. The Iranian strategy hinged on successfully capturing and holding Herat, but equally important was securing patronage from secondary powers like France and Prussia, who could provide a counterweight to the suffocating hegemony of Britain. This twofold military diplomatic strategy looked good on paper, but almost from the get go, things started going wrong. Firstly, there was the outreach program to the West. The Shah's first choice when it came to new friends was France. This was at least partially because of Nasser al-Din's personal admiration for Napoleon Bonaparte, whose nephew Napoleon III now ruled as Emperor of the French. The Shah sought to court the Emperor through lavish gifts, including four prized Turkoman horses, a jewelled sabre, priceless pearls and the Gajar equivalent of a knighthood. While Napoleon III appreciated the attention and flattery provided by Persian diplomats, he saw little advantage in acting against Britain, with whom he was allied in the Crimea, though the French did at least conclude a commercial treaty with Iran. Overtures to the Prussians and Austrians followed, but the latter, mainland European empires with little interest in Central Asia, did not see any benefit to deepening diplomatic relations with Iran. The Shah's European options exhausted, he turned to an emerging world power with a recently expanded navy and newfound interest in the wider world, the United States of America. The Iranians approached the Americans for a mutual trade agreement and even offered the US navy bases in the strategically important Persian Gulf. The two countries did sign a treaty of friendship, but one which only established minimal ties. Indeed, the United States didn't even see the need to establish an embassy in the country for another two decades. America, like Prussia, Austria and France, was unwilling to fundamentally upset its relationship with a shark like the British Empire for the sake of a minnow like Iran. Persian diplomatic initiative was by no means a total waste of time. The inexperienced Iranian diplomats had succeeded as much as anyone could have reasonably expected in opening up new channels with France and the US for the first time. However, they had failed in their central aim of finding a reliable Western patron that could stand up to Britain for the sake of Iranian interests. The last hope for the Shah lay with the Russians. Much of Nasser al-Din's willingness to risk antagonising the British had been based on Russian successes in the Crimean War. In March 1856, these hopes evaporated as the conflict ended in a victory for France, Britain and the Ottoman Empire. The Russians signed a peace treaty which barred their warships from sailing the Black Sea, limited their influence in the Ottoman Empire 
and left the British overall in a stronger position in Central Asia. The Shah had wagered that his Herat expedition would receive Russian assistance, but in the wake of defeat in the Crimea, St. Petersburg was in no position to support Iranian territorial ambitions. If the diplomatic side of the Herat strategy had failed to fundamentally re-alter Iran's position in the wider world, events closer to home were no more favourable to Iranian aspirations. Before launching the expedition to Herat, the Persians had needed a way to get around the 1853 treaty with the British, which you'll remember included a cause allowing Iranian troops to enter the city only if Herat were under attack from without. They also needed a casus belli better than, hey, it's our city, we're taking it back, go away and don't be bothering me. So, back in 1855, they had made a deal with Mohammad Yusuf Mirza, the ruler of Herat. The Iranians agreed to recognise Yusuf's regime if he invited the Persians into the city, ostensibly to defend the inhabitants from being conquered by Dost Mohammad Khan. In reality, Yusuf simply hoped to use Persian forces to shore up his weak control of the city. Yusuf, however, got cold feet about the deal and, about to be crushed between the Shah of Iran and the Emir of Afghanistan, he decided to throw in his lot with the British, raising the Union Jack in the citadel of Herat and declaring himself a vassal of Queen Victoria. Unfortunately for Yusuf, the British were unwilling to accept this unilaterally declared alliance, which left the Emir isolated. His vizier, an ambitious chief by the name of Isa Khan, overthrew the unpopular prince, delivered him to the Persians, and seized control of the city for himself. Despite initial gestures of goodwill, the wily Isa Khan had no desire to become a mere vassal of Tehran. Instead, he sought to maintain an independent emirate in Herat under British protection. As the main Persian army neared the city walls, Herat's new ruler switched his allegiances to the British, shut the gates and prepared for a siege. Everything seemed to be going against the Shah. The great powers of Europe and America had snubbed him, the justification for his invasion was in tatters, and a series of coups in Herat itself had brought a pro-British chief to power in the city. Instead of simply occupying the city with the support of its ruler, the Persian expeditionary force now faced competent military resistance from Isa Khan, who stood safe behind the high walls of Herat, the same walls that the Iranians had failed to breach back in the 1830s. The besieging force was commanded by the Shah's uncle, Sultan Murad Mirza, an energetic and ruthless young prince who had proven himself militarily during the Salah Revolt. Murad had promised Nuri a swift victory in Herat. However, by March 1856, the premier was starting to worry, writing to the general again in Aminat's translation, quote, You engaged with 10,000 troops and 10,000 Tomans to occupy Herat. 
I have sent you 80,000 Tomans, and you have 15,000 troops, and what have you done? We will admit of no further excuse. Herat must be taken. End quote. But Herat wasn't taken. Murad and his troops ended up stranded in front of the high walls of the city for nine long months. It was the usual story of Iranian military incompetence. The irregularly paid Persian conscripts were unwilling to risk their lives assaulting Herat's formidable defences, while more general incompetence saw the besiegers accidentally blow up their own ammunition dumps. Eventually, though, in October 1856, Persian sappers under the leadership of a French engineering expert tunnelled beneath the walls and surprised the starving defenders of Herat. The Pearl of Khorasan fell to the Shah's armies. As Herati mints produced coins bearing the image of Nasser al-Din and the city's mullahs praised him as their rightful ruler, British officials in India and London grew concerned. Throughout the siege, official diplomatic relations between London and Tehran had remained severed. In Istanbul, however, informal communications between the Persians and British representatives in the city were maintained. As soon as Herat fell, though, an irate foreign office lost its patience and severed all contact. The time for diplomacy had come to an end. Iran had defied the empire, and now she would be forced to pay a price for her insolence. In Tehran, news of the victory in Herat reached the Golestan Palace a few days after Murad had captured the city. This good news was followed soon after by the revelation that negotiations with the British in Istanbul had broken down. There was a mixed reaction in the capital. The Shah, even if he occasionally entertained delusions of becoming a Persian Napoleon, had never wished for war with Britain. With Herat finally captured, though, he seems to have become carried away with the drug of victory, as did other senior Persian officials. That this should be the case is hardly surprising. Persian elites had not known victory since the days of Aga Muhammad Khan, and now that they had a taste for it, they wanted more. Even the cautious and pro-British Nuri was not immune to the euphoria generated by the reconquest of Herat boasting that, if the British did declare war, then Iran could simply retaliate by capturing Kabul, or even the Punjab. Nuri's uncharacteristic optimism did not survive contact with reality. On the 1st of November 1856, the United Kingdom declared war on Iran. The British military strategy was designed to inflict maximum pressure on the Iranians, with minimum cost in terms of resources and manpower. Since most of the empire's forces were concentrated beyond the Hindu Kush in India, an overland campaign made little sense either logistically or politically. A land invasion would have required a crossing of the Himalayas, followed by a trudge through Afghanistan. Even if the Emir of Afghanistan was now a British ally, imperial commanders 
soon had fresh memories of the first Afghan war and the brutal losses they had suffered there. Britannia, so the song goes, ruled the waves, and it was English naval power that would bring Iran to heel. Accordingly, a small fleet of British warships made for the island of Cork, which they captured on the 4th of December, 1856. A few days later, on the 10th of December, British gunships battered the strategically important port city of Boucher. With their shore defences completely overwhelmed, the Iranian defenders fled the city. A mixed force of British soldiers and Indian sepoys, between 10 and 15,000 strong, under the command of Sir James Outram, a veteran of the British East India Company, occupied the city. In early February 1857, with Boucher firmly under his control, Outram prepared to march inland towards the Persian camp at Barozjan, about a hundred miles north of Boucher. The swiftness with which Boucher had been captured unnerved the Persian forces in Fars, who fled north from the invaders, leaving behind supplies and ammunition as they did so. Outram marched unopposed to Barozjan, captured the arsenal there, and turned back towards his base in Boucher. It was on the return leg of this journey that Outram's forces first met serious Iranian opposition. Not long after leaving the arsenal at Barozjan, Gashgai tribal cavalry began harassing the British Indian column. Outram's forces were well trained and disciplined, maintaining order on the march in spite of constant Iranian skirmishing. When the column paused at the village of Khushab, literally Goodwater, the Iranian attackers, a mix of regular infantry, artillery and Gashgai cavalry, assaulted the British in force. Outram's men formed up in an oblong and stood their ground, successfully resisting numerous Persian sorties throughout the night of the 7th of February. As their opponents exhausted themselves against the disciplined and experienced sepoys, Outram prepared a counter-offensive for the following morning. When dawn broke, the British found their enemies arranged in formation, infantry in the centre, with flanks protected by Gashgai horsemen, apparently waiting for Outram and his men to make their move. After the skirmishing of the previous night, the Battle of Khoshab would prove to be a more traditional pitched affair. The British took the initiative, forming into two lines and marching on the Persian forces. After an artillery duel, in which the British emerged victorious, holes were opened up in the destabilised Persian lines. At this point, the Anglo-Indian cavalry smelt blood and charged their Iranian counterparts. The Gashgai horsemen scattered, exposing the Persian flanks. The morale of the infantry broke and the retreat quickly became a disorganised stampede. One British officer described the scene. Quote, The rout of the enemy was complete and the troopers, as well as the irregulars, were fairly well exhausted cutting down the fugitives. The horse artillery guns too, following them as long as their horses could go, destroyed great numbers, and the track of the pursuit was thickly marked by slain and wounded. End quote. 
Between the skirmishes of the previous night and the battle proper, Outram had lost just over a dozen men. The Iranians, meanwhile, suffered 700 killed, captured or wounded, not counting however many simply deserted in the chaotic aftermath of the engagement. It was the last time the Shah's army would attempt to face the British in open battle. However elated the government in Tehran had been, in the afterglow of the capture of Herat, the defeats of Boucher and Khoshab brought the Shah back to reality with a bang. By now, Nuri was desperately suing for peace. However, the central British war aim was not simply to defeat the Persians in the field and extract a treaty to their liking. The expedition was punitive, a demonstration of the folly of defying London's hegemony, and the Iranian punishment was not quite over. The next engagement of the war occurred in the city of Muharram, modern Khoram Shahr, in the province of Khuzestan, on the 26th of March, 1857. As at Boucher, overwhelming British naval superiority wiped out the feeble shore defences before Sepoy infantry captured the practically undefended town. With the waterways of Khuzestan under their control, the British could easily advance deeper into Persian territory. To illustrate to the Shah just how vulnerable he now was, British gunboats sailed deep into the interior and bombarded the city of Afaz. The bombing was the final act of the conflict. Britain finally concluded that Iran had been humiliated enough. The peace treaty that ended the war was surprisingly lenient. Iran renounced all claims to Herat and agreed that any future disputes between Tehran and Kabul would be subject to British arbitration. Britain cemented its hegemony over Iran by compelling the Shah to concede most favoured nation status to the United Kingdom. Surprisingly, the British didn't raise any objections to the new ruler of Herat, a pro-Persian relative of Dost Mohammed Khan, who also enjoyed good relations with the British authorities in India. In 1863, this obscure figure would find himself removed by Dost Mohammed Khan, whose last act as ruler of Afghanistan would be to annex the city. After a century of conflict, the Pearl of Khorasan was definitively integrated into the Afghan state, where it remains to this day. All in all, Iran had done well to emerge from the conflict intact. The British, had they chosen to do so, could easily have overthrown the Shah and placed a pliant Gajar prince on the peacock throne. In the end, though, for reasons of realpolitik, the British concluded that it would be safer to maintain the Iranian state in its current form, rather than risking an unpredictable change in the status quo. The Iranian negotiators who concluded the Treaty of Paris that ended the war were also assisted by the government of Napoleon III, who sought to limit British power in Central Asia. Indeed, Nasser al-Din was so grateful for French support that he deepened his one-sided bromance with the Emperor of the French by sending even more gifts, including an engraved sword once possessed by Shah Abbas the Great. French sympathy and an excellent performance by the Persian diplomatic corps meant that Iran performed much better in the peace than she had in the war. Two Iranian diplomats in particular, 
the chief negotiator Amin al-Mulk and his advisor, a young Armenian convert to Islam by the name of Malcolm Khan, stand out for their patience and intelligent diplomacy under adverse circumstances. Indeed, al-Mulk and Malcolm Khan were able to secure two crucial concessions from the British. First, on the issue of British protégés, London agreed not to offer protection to any Iranians not actually employed by the British government, providing that other great powers did the same. Second, the British accepted the Tehran government's right to send troops beyond its frontiers in response to invasions from without, improving the Shah's ability to deter Afghan and Turkmen raiding in the east. Most surprising of all, the British dropped their demand for the resignation of Nuri. Given the scale of the defeat, these were remarkable achievements for the Iranian negotiators. In the end, the war was a military, but not a political disaster, with Iran even managing to win a few concessions at the negotiating table. However, even though the state had managed to survive the bloody encounter with the British Empire, its weaknesses remained obvious for all to see. A growing number of Iranians were dissatisfied with this state of affairs. Mostly young and exposed to European ideas through education or through service in the diplomatic corps, these modernizers sought to both explain Iran's weakness in the face of Western powers and to implement reforms that would strengthen the country. On our next episode, we will meet this new generation of Iranian reformers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes, Podcast Republic or whatever podcasting app you use. You can follow on Twitter at modern underscore Iran or send us an email, historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye, slán, chodá. Yeah.